and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan, and I am Timothy Swan, and I am Timothy Swan, and I am... Sorry, it got stuck on a little um, scratch there. Uh, we use vinyl to make all our podcasts. That's an insider secret. Uh, today, this is a genuine bona fide classic, if uh, such a word can be used, Franken podcast, uh, because Ben is on a New York quest. He is on a quest to retrieve a Belair claw, uh, a Blair claw. He's going to try and find the claws of the mysterious, shape-shifting, evil, lizard-like animal known as the Blair. Ha ha ha, satire circa 2003. Um, I better include the clip where he talks about looking for a bear claw in New York, I guess. Um, otherwise, I'll just be referring to stuff that I cut out of the podcast again. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, what will be included is all sorts of things being talked about by me and Ben. Full dose of psychology in which we'll be talking about dieters. I don't know what that is. Something to do with restrained eaters and context by Ben that I wasn't listening to apparently at the time. Uh, what makes people appreciate classical music and the introduction of my math punk band, The Dynamic Modifiers. And also uh, all the stuff I cut out of category violations and superheroes uh, because it didn't stay on topic but includes me basically just being objective, uh, not objective, but objecting to lots of different little things that Ben then explains why it makes sense. So uh, enjoy the uh, show. Uh, next week will be an exciting demi-podcast and then there'll be a Christmas break. Uh, so that's where we're going over the next few weeks. Hope you enjoyed the David Lloyd interview. I know it was a bit different. We're giving you plenty of psychology hopefully this week to... Uh, just redress the balance, I suppose. Uh, if you want to contact the show to let us know how much you like slash dislike slash just don't really have any feelings about classic Franken podcasts or interview episodes, then you can do that by visiting uh, Twitter and atting, as I would call it, uh, at Team Psychomedia or at Tetrock Angel, if you want to be more direct to me. Uh, you can visit facebook.com slash psychomedia. That's where all the bits I forget going. I was literally up in the loft this week looking for a picture that I promised on the show that I can't find. <laughs> so I'm going up into a cold loft looking through boxes and risking my uh, life and limb for this for this particular show. So uh, yeah, hopefully I'll find one. I didn't find it yet. Um, you can uh, visit psychomedia.wordpress.com where the proper full official show notes go and you can comment there you can tag on tumblr with psychomedia that will be something i will find you um and you can email us psychomediapodcast at gmail.com so uh until next week when i'll address all of the uh actual live feedback and stuff like that bye for now But not like a bear claw, because that, as I learned from one of my medias of the week this week, is actually a kind of pastry. Yes. Bear uh, claws are really nice. I had one once. I, I had to have one, because it's like, it's called a bear claw. It must be delicious. Is it like a, is it a New York thing? Is it I don't know. It's an American thing, so. Okay, I will, my, my quest when I go to New York in, uh, in December will be to find myself a bear claw and devour it. Uh, okay so yeah it sounds like not the greatest new york quest but well it's I, not bad yeah it could be worse um <laughs> there have been worse anyway oh ben oh, i don't know what you're thinking of but what that made me think of was so horrible i wasn't thinking of anything so there we go okay uh and you know just as i want to be on the uh, do the right thing podcast i do want to be on its brother podcast Pappas Fletcher slammed down. But yeah, they were amazing. I talked to one of the guys afterwards and I met someone. Okay, I met someone there because I was um, 
we were kind of talking, you know, it was like all the cool fan kids, by which I mean like the three people who are actually obsessed with Pappas and know who they are. <laughs> we watched them were just like, yeah, you know, sign our badges. Um, I did this thing. Sign we'll believe you doing this. It's very different. Badges. They gave out badges, not badges. That would be crazy, I but hilarious. <laughs> but uh, And then someone was saying to me, oh, yeah, I did this thing. I know the person on Tumblr and Twitter. And I'm just like, this person sounds like my sort of person. <laughs> So I said to her, oh, yeah, I did something that was done on the Pappy's Tumblr about epigenetics and uh, like genetic influence on behavior. Um, yeah, that's the sort of thing they are. They make jokes. I write in science that proves that their jokes are true. <laughs> My life. Hooray. Um, that's pretty good, to be honest. Anyway, so I just looked up anyone who'd seen Pappy's like on Tumblr afterwards and was just like, oh, this person sounds interesting. Oh, they're from Worcester. So I'm like, hi there. And this person messages back. Hey, you're that person I spoke to at the gig. And it's like, OK, I know that Worcestershire is a small world. <laughs> Yeah, Worcestershire is a small world, but once you include the liking of a niche sketch comedy group, then the Venn diagram I mean, shrinks to a point. <laughs> Look at that Venn diagram, and it's just me and someone called Josie. So, <laughs> uh, there we go. Um, Good. So I became a stalker, basically the moral of the story. Um, oh, wait, I did just remember one one last piece of feedback in a couple of episodes ago, maybe. I haven't quite listened back yet. Edinburgh gives me quite a backlog of podcasts. Um I, I got told off by someone because we I pointed out on the show that my friends had been accusing her of being my girlfriend in Canada. You know how all American kids, I have a girlfriend, but she's in Canada. Um, no? Okay, then. Because um, no. <laughs> it's like a fake girlfriend. I don't know what we say. We never say, well, I've got a girlfriend, but she's in Wales. Because seriously, <laughs> Wales. But um, Her name is Jonah. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Biblical citation humour. <laughs> Oh, um, but or is that just dolphins? I don't know. Anyway, carry on. I can't remember. Um, it's very important to put cetaceans in your work. Like, <laughs> every time yeah, you mention it, someone, no. you need to put a dolphin in it. Yeah, Wikipedia. <laughs> cetaceans needed. I mean, if you don't do that, what's the purpose of research in the first place? I, 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 I will travel through time and kill you before you're born. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. um. Yeah, uh, apparently I got quite badly told off for being that creepy and stalkerish to a woman I've never met. So you say you were out of order. It's really bad Canadian. Anyway, yeah. Uh, well, I'm. Uh, yeah. So we got got some negative feedback. It shows that we are finally uh, making it on the internet, although it's <laughs> quite good reason. Yeah, but we're starting off with negative feedback from people we know and like in real life, so that's good. Yeah, super. Letting ourselves in gently. Anyway. Uh, um. So first, a little bit of feedback from Franz. Hi, Franz. Thank you for feeding back after not feeding back for a while. That's nice to know that you're still out there. I feel that whenever like a commenter, you know, re says something to us. Yeah, we were worried about you. I, I, I don't know. You never call. You never text. Here are we sitting at home, worried, sick about you. And you're just all gallivanting around, not sending us feedback. Are you thinking of our listeners as children again? <laughs> Slash relationship partners. I prefer that thinking is, as our kids. Some, it's Why quite important to keep those quite categorically separate. Yes, we're not incestuous. Yes. Anyway, uh, um, yeah, Franz points out that if you miss the old LucasArts adventures, which I do, I don't know if you do, Ben, I bought you some of them, I note. I, I miss them in the sense that I missed them. Yes. But apparently... I played a little bit of Monkey Island. Yeah. Apparently the game Ben There, Dan That which sounds great, and the sequel Time Gentleman Please, which I think I've, I've either played it, not completely, or seen it, I don't know. Time Gentleman Please sounds really familiar, and not just because of the Al Murray show. Um, it's one of those uh, sentences that can 
drastically change its meaning depending on where you put the comma. <laughs> Basic time, gentlemen, please, is you requesting gentlemen from the anthropomorphic embodiment of time. Well, yeah, exactly. Time, gentlemen, please, is requesting that two steampunk time travellers stop messing up your living room. Yeah. Uh, I guess that was the only two places you can put a comma. Um, yeah, I was just thinking that time, gentlemen... you done anything else this week um yes yes i did i went to uh, the poetry society again ah. i thought i'd mention that and i still haven't uploaded the edited poem because obviously they give kind of constructive feedback mm. from that quite yet um but it's sitting here on my desk in front of me mm-hmm. but it's kind of cool because i didn't take i haven't had anything kind of um actually given the kind of critical eye of oh would you change this yeah quite yet and it's quite interesting to do that and realize because i'm not very much one for editing um and thinking of writing because that's all brutal so poetry i've been writing a little uh, bit of stand-up because i'm taking part in a uh, talent show ah. um on uh sunday and um yes i um have discovered that if you're trying to write jokes for an audience that you know is going to be broad Mm. um it's really hard to write jokes that don't contain lots of references (laughs) and a lot of my i mean i knew that a lot of my comedy such as it is is about references it's either about like really niche references or glamour model (laughs) and occasionally both (laughs) yeah it's a weird dichotomy isn't it but i suppose yeah i don't know how this fill your uh, fill your niche (laughs) Yeah, every 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 comedian has their niche and their style, but and yours apparently is this is Star Wars and glamour models. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's what Twilex are for, isn't it? Um, anyhow, so yes, <laughs> I, I I I I'm not going to test out the uh, comedy on you this time, but well, I mean, that, uh, that, maybe this week we show. actually have like content to talk about eventually. Yeah, so <laughs> spent a lot of time talking about nothing. Ben, quickly. Oh, yeah. Well, I kind of hope that I have the opportunity to. I'm going to the Lake District in a couple of weeks' time with my friends. Whereabouts are you going to in the Lake District, Tim? I have no idea. I I am not, like, engaged with that holiday. I've got a holiday with my family first next week, so my brain's totally in. I'm going to Wales! I'm going to Wales! Uh, What you need to do is, when you go to the Lake District, if the opportunity arises to climb uh, the hill, or the mountain, actually, called Skidor... Skidor, okay. Which I believe is the third highest and considered to be the easiest of the big hills right. to climb. And it's a very nice climb, actually. And you don't need, I would recommend if you do, you don't go all the way to the bit that is technically the top because that bit's very boring um, and kind of hard work. Um, but uh, there is a point where you kind of, you've come up a bit and you're kind of in a little, in a little gully between two peaks the main one in front of you and then a kind of ridge, higher ridge off to the left. And if you take the left path and go up over this ridge and head down uh, back into the valley, uh, there are a series, as there are all over these hills, of little cairns, piles of the slate loose stones. And if you uh, keep a close eye out on the first one you come to, you'll find a piece of slate uh, carved with uh, the dwarven runes from Lord of the Rings uh, which, if you decipher, will say uh, the road goes ever and on and on. Right. Uh, which I carved whilst bored walking up the mountain. Okay. So That's there. a great thing to leave for someone. I, I mean, congratulations. If any of our listeners are in the Lake District, and we have, you know, a good number of British listeners, um, 
go and see if you can find Ben's message. I'll, <laughs> I may, you know, we, I don't know. It's amazing. Um, if you do that, I mean, if you do manage to do that, that'd be incredible. My plan was that I was going to do a series of them for each, each of the little peaks of this ridge for each of the lines of the poem, but I kind of got bored after the first one. So <laughs> I had to, kept, had to keep checking my smartphone for the uh, translation. Of well, the I was route. going to say, I didn't know that you knew Dwarvish. Uh, no, I used to know my name in it, but that wasn't all that impressive. Uh, uh, yeah, did you show name letter primacy or whatever? There's <laughs> uh, oh, no one ever studied that in Klingon or <laughs> Klingon. Well, you went all Brian Cox there for a minute. Amazing. <laughs> no, I can't. Um, We've got till Friday um, for it to go out. So. Does it go out religiously at the same time? Every... Tim, I think, likes it too. Uh, okay. When I did last week's one, I recorded it at starting at about nine on Friday. So uh, that didn't go out when it was meant to. But, you know, it, it's not the end of the world if it doesn't. But, you know, since Tim is doing all the editing, we do what we can to acquiesce to his demands. Okay. Fair enough. Yes, go on then. Uh, it was really tricky this week. I've, I've consumed a lot of excellent media this week. I've started watching The Wire um, from the beginning, which I'd never seen before, which oh, is... do a horrible s- thing to you then. Astonishingly <laughs> good. Um, and now I do see what all the fuss is about with Omar. Uh, and I also started watch. I also saw Skyfall, uh, or Skiffle, um, which was excellent. Again, promoted... Uh, it, promoted induced a long and interesting conversation about gender roles and uh, sexism in cinema between myself and the girlfriend which trended onto joss whedon's strong female characters which led me today to spend much of this morning looking at videos of joss whedon talking about stuff on youtube okay i should probably show you the strong female character flowchart from overthinking it because that's an interesting point on what really makes a strong female character presumably it's sort of an extension of the two female characters that speak to each other at some point about yeah it's a bit like a hardcore version of the bechdel test that would be uh, because there are like five conditions but then once you go off in the flowchart you find kind of your stereotype even if it's not a complete three-dimensional strong female character but i think joss does fail at least occasionally Mm. because all his strong female characters are strong you know well yeah, yeah they're not necessarily strong characters they're strong women and stuff yeah okay anyway that's like a long and complicated discussion that we don't really have time for and it's definitely on the wrong podcast anyway uh so there was that i also started and indeed finished watching the entirety of three seasons of archer which is a uh what's the word cartoon adult cart very adult cartoon on uh, i think it's comedy central but i'm not sure um maybe adult swim one of those it's basically a consummate spoof of Bond, uh, which made the, meant that my viewing of Skyfall was somewhat marred. Particularly, there's a bit in Archer where the main character, uh, who's called Archer and is the spoof of James Bond, uh, is telling everyone how he's always dreamed of fighting someone on top of a train. It's yeah. like his, his long-term goal in life is to fight someone on top of a train. And then in the episode in which they're transporting a... a uh, Nova Scotian separatist from America to Canada on a train. He ends up on t- trying to get up on top of the train to fight someone and discovering that it's an utterly stupid thing to do. It's impossible to fight, very unpleasant, 
And why would you even bother? Why not just stay inside the train? Um, Which meant that the opening of Skyfall, where, spoilers, Bond fights on top of a train, was slightly uh, undermined by that. Yeah, I really feel the only train fight I can take seriously in film is the Mission Impossible one, where it's very clear that it's stupid and dangerous and difficult. Yeah, exactly. Um, But then a helicopter goes in a toll. So, you know... I mean, in Archer, it's stupid and dangerous and difficult, but there is also an ocelot running around, which helps a great deal. Uh, (laughs) An ocelot ocelot called Babu, uh, who Archer falls head over heels in love with at first sight, uh, in a non-creepy way, for once in that series. Anyway. (laughs) The Old Republic. Update. Why would it update that? Is it just not downloading quick enough, or is it, like, actually... It gets stuck on the install, it gets corrupted install, it gets all sorts of problems. I've tried literally ah. everything on their launcher list. I'm going to send this ticket, but I know that they're never going to respond. They at least point out that, um, you know, um, you can't use wireless to do it. I mean, right. have you ever had any issue with updating World of Warcraft? No, I mean, I, I updated... Um, I'm on I'm on wireless and or I, I suppose I could have been on wireless. Um, actually, no, I wasn't on wireless when I updated Tor. Yeah, um, I was on Home Plug, which is subtly different. I guess it's not possible for you to just get a network cable and plug it in. My computer is all the way upstairs, so I did that. But no, I've been doing it. I've took it downstairs to the hub and plugged it. Yeah, in, and it's still not working. It's not merely wireless problem. Mm. It's you know just really. I mean, it's they, yeah. you know, and hundreds of people have this problem because their computer is like slightly corrupting the signal, tiny little bit, and it's like got no error tolerance for corruption for uh, gigabytes and gigabytes of data, and they wonder why it went free to play in less than a year. I feel like, and you know, that that might have contributed a bit. You know, I, I have to say, whilst it, like the storyline is quite good, I. I went back on i was really psyched about getting back onto it yeah i played it for maybe a couple of hours yeah and i immediately remembered why i quit like it's the it's just the mechanics of the the fighting and the combat are just boring yeah that is true so much and like have you read the list of restrictions that you have as a free-to-play character no i haven't they are stupid they are hideously like abusively prohibitive of free-to-play players it's not because the point about going free-to-play is that like free-to-play players are second-class citizens but you 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 give them a small number of restrictions and then you make it you make them want to pay in to the system you've got to get that balance right what tor does is it just removes everything and it's constantly like you have to pay more to you have to pay to use certain weapons you have to pay to unlock sprint. Uh, you know, you like, it's just, there's so many things that you're only allowed two character slots. You're only allowed three races in your character selection. It's yeah. It's oh, just really, really, really blast. Obnoxious. I should have made all my characters first. Yeah. It's obnoxiously prohibitive. So, I mean, I was, I was like genuinely wondering, like I have got a bit of an MMO itch at the moment. There are like a bunch of really good free to plays out there. Like DDO is really fun. Right? Have you tried Lotro? No, that's but I just would... gone free to play, and I thought about it. I would be really interested in giving that a go. Um, I mean, I think it's from what I've heard, it's pretty 
standard. Like it's it's the WoW model. Yeah, but the WoW model it, works. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, if you if you did fancy trying trying something out, either I mean, I've played DDO before, yeah, and it's cool because it has like the inordinate range of classes and ca- like types. You can be like, I I was a monk in that, like yeah. a proper monk, and that was awesome fun. Um, and the free to play model there is extremely fair. Um, so yeah, either that or all of the rings might be quite fun at some point. Yeah. Maybe have a look into it. Well, I do want to finish The Old Republic, though, you know, because it is yeah. sort of like a big Bioware game, even if the combat is a bit boring. Combat's boring in uh, Dragon Age as well. That is undeniably so, yeah. I guess, yeah, at the moment, I, I just got um, Chivalry yeah. the other day, which was going to be my media of the week, but we skipped it. Yeah. Um, That's fine. There'll be all the time in the world. We do an episode just... <laughs> a week. It's too much for most people. Yeah, that is just hilariously fun. That's that's interesting and annoying because that final point um, pertains very uh, closely to um, the next study, actually, that I'm going to talk about. The final okay, study. go for it. We're gonna we're gonna mix this up. We're sadly not going to be able to talk about some mix lot. Okay, you have a choice. You can either um, validate the the foreshadowing, the earlier foreshadowing of some mix a lot, or you can have a more appropriate segue. Which would you like? I mean, I would like some mix a lot, really, because one, it keeps the hip hop high. Yeah. Uh, and uh, two, because when I saw that study in the search of Google Scholar, I really wanted to do it myself. So, uh, yeah. Incidentally, think- uh, hip hop high is um, a grid based um, like game that you play. But instead of using zeros and crosses, you, um, you use bullets and lines of cocaine. <laughs> uh... <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, so, um, okay, we'll, we'll go for this a mix lot. Uh, we'll just have to try and refer back generally. Okay, remember that final point that you were making about um, restrained versus unrestrained eaters and the Im- impact of context um, okay, and, yep, and cues? Uh, and we'll, we'll reference that again uh, in a bit that goes into some future Franklin podcast or such. Anyway. Right. Shall I crack on with a, th- a final third study? And- yes, I believe you told me to remember something about the menstrual cycle. That was not at all what I asked you to remember. <laughs> I know. You told me to remember that there is a relationship between dieters and non-dieters or restrained eaters and non-restrained eaters and the context. So what context have you got to offer us? Well, it's kind of about a kind of eating restraint that I want to talk about, specifically habitual eating. So the study is called The Pull of the Past. When do habits persist despite conflict with motives? It's by Neil Wood Wu and Kurlander, 2011. Um, And it's looking at the idea that hunger isn't the only thing that makes us eat. Sometimes we eat purely for pleasure, sometimes out of boredom. Some people eat for money or prizes. Some people eat money or prizes. Um, (laughs) And sometimes we eat just because it's what we do in, we always do in a particular context because it's become habit. Uh, Neil at our study is looking at habitual eating and what factors affect whether or not we eat habitually under different contexts. So, they uh, used a relative, the relatively common habit of eating popcorn at the cinema. Mm. And they yep. took a group of 98 participants and they showed them 15 minutes of video footage with a box of popcorn to eat. 
Um, beforehand, the participants rated themselves for hunger, attitudes towards popcorn, and the strength of their cinema popcorn habits. You know, how often they... Amazing scales. Yeah, I know, right. Um, they were also afterwards asked to, uh, asked to rate their liking for the film and for the popcorn itself. Um, and then they had the two... Uh, experimental manipulations. The first was context. So participants either watched movie trailers in a cinema or music videos in a campus conference room. So yeah. either in the in the context that the habit normally occurs or out of the context in a novel environment. Uh, the second manipulation was freshness. Um, so the popcorn was either fresh or stale. So this gives us uh, two by two, four groups of participants. Um, and the results were as follows. Um, liking for the popcorn was only affected by freshness. Uh, I, fresh popcorn was rated as tastier than stale popcorn. Um, and stale was rated below the midpoint. I, participants, disliked stale popcorn rather than particularly liking fresh popcorn. There was no difference in the liking for popcorn or indeed uh, in the self-rated hunger across any of the other conditions. So that kind of establishes the baseline. Um, the amount of popcorn that was eaten was predicted by three things. Firstly, by gender. So men ate a little bit more. Uh, then by context. So people and participants in the cinematic context ate more. And finally, by freshness. So participants ate more fresh popcorn. Um, finally, and most interestingly, was the three-way interaction between habit strength, context, and freshness. So I do like a good three-way three- interaction. <laughs> oh, you sent me you sent me a link right on uh, twitter this week or something which i clicked on just as my mother was entering the room <laughs> saw what it was and was just like close tab close tab so i haven't listened to it yet well it was because uh, ex- she won't have heard last week's episode and I thus will... i would have had to explain i will explain i will Sorry. explain that the particular listener. reference you don't really you don't really need to do it you don't really need to follow the link uh, it's a pity that i can't make um twitter actually play the music at you but you posted where is it something about um watching uh, reading game of thrones being good for your poetry yeah <laughs> uh, i can't find the specific Oh, and then I tweeted like some lines from a poem that I'm writing at the minute, which is like quite explicit lines about sexy incest, I guess. Ah, I I wondered if it was actually about sexy incest or whether you were just like being figurative about something, um, you know, like you do in your poety ways. Oh, yeah. Normally everything is hidden in a dense layer of code, but this is just like, (laughs) yeah, incest. Moistness. Huzzah. So, yeah, I just linked you to uh, I think it's actually... Which I believe is called Spider Pussy. Uh, but anyway, there we go. Is that a parody on Spider-Man? Possibly. I don't know. I, I just don't know anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not looking that up. Uh, did you know that the most expensive porn film ever made was a parody of Pirates of the Caribbean? Yes, but didn't it also make a ton of money? Quite possibly. I don't know. I think it made more than... Well, it certainly made more than uh, Gina What's-Her-Face's uh, Pirates film. You know, The Adventure of Pirates or whatever it's called. I, I, I don't. But anyway. Um, I, I've, I, I, no, I have seen some clips from that movie. You know, the acting bits. Oh, right. In the same way I've seen some clips from the uh, Big Bang Theory XXX parody, but just the acting bits. Oh, right. How is it? It's quite weird. It's not terrible. <laughs> okay. Apparently, this is where the big money is in the 
I read an article about the decline and fall. Louis Theroux has written a follow-up article about the decline and fall of the pornography industry, which kind of stood 10 years ago at its peak. And now it's really <laughs> downhill. At its peak. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he's saying that parody seems to be where the money is at the minute. Because you know how you'll buy anything with a franchise on? Apparently that goes to pornography as well. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, there we go. little aside there about pornography. Completely unrelated to this study, except I suppose in the fact that cinema is involved. Um, <laughs> Yeah, okay. So, uh, sorry, the three-way interaction. That's where we were. We were, in, we were engrossed in this three-way and then... No, we don't want to say that, Barry. Became distracted. <laughs> um, so, uh, there was a three-way interaction between habit strength, context, and freshness. So, it, when they were in the cinema, in the cinematic context, participants who had weak or moderate popcorn habits ate less stale than fresh popcorn, as kind of consistently. So... They didn't have very strong habits and therefore they expressed this preference for the fresh popcorn and they didn't want to eat the stale stuff. However, participants with strong popcorn habits just ignored the freshness. They ate as much stale popcorn as they did fresh. Um, By comparison, in the conference room, everyone ate less stale popcorn than fresh popcorn, regardless of the habit strength. Oh, that's interesting. So basically, it seems to be sort of... um, uh, a, a magnification effect. If you've got a very strong popcorn habit or eating habit in general, when you're in the appropriate context for that habit, you kind of ignore other motivational factors like flavour or yeah. liking for the food. Um, so, uh, and so it would appear that context is vitally important uh, for the processes behind habitual eating. Uh, yeah. So perhaps... If you're trying to kick some kind of eating habit that you you want to stop, the first step would be to try and avoid the context in which it occurs. Um, uh, Neil et al. also did a second study uh, where they looked at another factor that might be important in habitual eating, that is automaticity. Um, If you're a robot or not. Exactly. Uh, When you perform a habitual activity, it tends to become automatic, almost, almost like an unconscious act. Um, Neil et al. wanted to find out whether disrupting the automatic nature of habitual eating could actually derail the process. So they used an identical methodology to study one, with the exception that all the participants were watching trailers in the cinema. Um, And so they removed the context manipulation, but they included an additional uh, condition of uh, handedness. So... Half the participants ate the popcorn with their dominant hand, while the other half used their non-dominant hand, uh-huh. which I thought was really cool. Uh, and the results were remarkably similar to study one. Once again, only freshness predicted liking for the popcorn. No other differences across condition in liking for the popcorn or hunger. Uh, this time, the amount eaten was only predicted by habit strength. Um, there was a trend a non-significant trend of handedness but interestingly this time there was no reported effect of gender or freshness despite the fact that males and females were included in the study um but ignore that for the time being and once again there was the key three-way interaction between habit strength freshness and this time handedness so participants uh with moderate or strong habits ate the same amount of fresh and stale popcorn when they were using their dominant hand so in this case only participants with self-rated weak popcorn habits ate less stale popcorn with their um, dominant hand 
I suppose this may have something to do with the fact that all of them are in the appropriate context. Everyone is in the yeah. cinema. So maybe those people who only have moderate habits are now kind of getting extra boosting upwards and so are eating just as much stale as fresh popcorn. Although, presumably, they were using their dominant hand the first time around. That is probably true. Um, when, but sorry. I suppose the significant differences are then with those who aren't using their dominant hand so there, there was never that comparison before and that's where the significance emerges maybe exactly so when participants use their non-dominant hand participants um with moderate and strong habits a were back to eating significantly less stale popcorn than fresh popcorn so that's it interestingly looking at the and this demonstrates an important uh, principle about considering your statistics there was actually when using the non-dominant hand there was actually no difference in the amount of stale versus fresh popcorn eaten by participants with weak habits which seems completely inconsistent until you look at the data and discover that it's actually a floor effect so participants with a very weak popcorn habit are eating so little popcorn when they use their non-dominant hand that there's no difference between how much fresh or how much stale. They're just not eating any, basically. Where was this study done? I don't know. Because uh, I was just going to slander America and be like, only in America could you be too lazy to eat some popcorn because you're using your opposite hand. <laughs> it Well, let me see. Where are we? But, you know, I could do that for Britain as well. Um, let's find out. I imagine it was the University of Southern California. Uh, participants mm. it doesn't say specifically where the cinema was but they're all at uh, California universities so yeah universities only in America <laughs> uh, so there we go um, if you want to break a pesky eating habit uh, tie one hand behind your back and only eat meals in conference rooms there we go well there we go So, yes, to come barreling back around, uh, <laughs> it, it, what I would quite like to see is a penguin orchestra. That would be amazing. Unfortunately, I, we just I, have to I'd s- love to see a penguin playing the trombone. Oh, yeah. Like, That's just the amazing <laughs> instrument. Come on, yeah. Nick Park, get on it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we don't have penguin orchestras. We just have well-dressed orchestras. And believe it or not, that is the study I'm going to talk about slightly. Uh, <laughs> it's called... Uh, That's not bad belabored segue i know give me give me a gong man i would have said gong me but you know i just end up getting like thwacked that could have gone wrong i'm not sure if that's okay incidentally miyazaki is also the same surname as the guy who came up with uh, studio ghibli so yeah maybe it's the same guy ponyo 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 um sorry determinedness of listeners enjoyment of a performance not going on as long as this Uh, um, also actually in the study um so this is by a guy called sam thompson and i say a guy because i'm a massive sexist this is by a person i was using guy neutral okay guy neutral also a new superhero um isn't it i think that's a uh, a sexual orientation in dungeons and dragons isn't it <laughs> oh you, yeah has anyone ever done like a version of <laughs> i want to oh, see wait. what chaos me, chaotic me. Guy. i'm the guy who did the version of uh, the uh, orientation scale for sex what is chaotic guy <laughs> i know i'm pretty sure i know some people who are chaotic guy <laughs> yeah i mean like I feel like guy is like the neutral version of a man, right? So you've got gentleman, and then guy is neutral, and then lad, that is oh, okay. like on the evil side, right? Right. 
and then just chaotic and but how can you ah uh, yeah lawful, can you lawful like... lad is someone who obeys all the drinking games okay <laughs> <laughs> oh all right okay well, i've got to create that orientation matrix now hooray actually i i think it's slightly wrong i think guy is neutral i think la- uh, lad is slightly upper class and i think bro is lower class oh right okay you're going for that yeah i, was... I think so you you can have like chaotic lad is like um alka or the um bullingdon club right uh, what is a uh, bro. lawful bro a lawful bro it, he's like a solid bro like okay you know he doesn't get doesn't get absolutely catastrophically wasted you know he looks out for his bros okay <laughs> right well <laughs> that's your we job we were talking for the show about doing a pen and paper rpg let's not yes. do that in our pen and paper rpg <laughs> <laughs> chaotic bro so this is by thompson who is uh, actually a gender neutral person uh at the royal college of music and uh was this was published in the psychology of music which is probably a fascinating journal we've already done two episodes on music itself what this actually looks at is what makes a performance good uh, so it was a questionnaire measure given to concert goers and musicians and it focused on classical music so i've already looked at rock music because i'm aware that Performance is very different from rock music to contemporary classical performances. People might have had a circle pit at the Magic Flute when it first came out. Not really nowadays. So, having tipped the hat to the same review of music and emotion that we covered, Thompson notes that not much really has been done looking at the enjoyment of music in the live context. Critics are really the only people who have to think about it, and that's a very cognitive approach, whereas enjoyment is at least partially emotional. Again, I've been doing the kind of cognitive emotional dichotomy today. You've been talking about science. It's all kind of well and good. Um, you know, it, it, it all ends up making sense somehow. It's internally consistent, even if it's not objectively consistent. This is my conclusion that our subconscious is much better at podcasting than we are. I don't think I'd want to let my subconscious open on a podcast <laughs> because my it, my inhibitions are generally less on a podcast, generally, mm. because usually I'm doing it with you and it's a bit like I forget that we actually have an audience. <laughs> Might explain some of the jokes. Um, <laughs> jokes. Uh, I'm doing an info. So many levels of wrong. Yeah. Which would be probably be quite a good title for a podcast, actually. Anyway. <laughs> I wonder if someone's doing it called that. Anyway, uh, let's not create that show. We've got enough to do. Uh, what has been considered previously is the impact on race, gender, attractiveness, and on-stage behavior to perceptions of quality, which I'm sure has depressing results all around. Um, but what these things are actually biasing has not been studied, which is a bit stupid, really. The additional reason why it's stupid is it's not that hard to study. Quality and emotional response have been found to be linked across a variety of art forms. But Thompson has found that emotional response is a better predictor of enjoyment than ratings of quality. So, for example, see my response to Looper or Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which does admittedly have a confound of hype, which I'll come back to later. But basically, I knew that they were good, but I didn't really respond emotionally very strongly to them. Um, and whereas even a film like Expendables 2, which I know was not very good, but I responded with a degree of laughter and visceral gung honus, which is not to be confused with prostitution on Naboo, by the way. <laughs> and incidentally, I can finally give my... Con- I like that one. Yeah, I was kind of... I felt kind of proud, but then I didn't think about it too much. I can finally give my elevator pitch of Loop, and now it's not in the cinemas, is that it's Terminator 2 meets The Omen. Right. That's what it is. Right. Okay. So, right. Where was it? Classical music. 
that model that Thompson had come up with left 60% of the variance unexplained, which he says is like a terrible thing. It's like, no, 40% variance explained is That's amazing. That's a lot of variance. That's a whole You know, for one variance. predictor. But he does point out that whenever you try and write down the factors that will impact life performance and its enjoyment, you get tons. So, for example, a researcher called McPherson travelled back in time and grabbed Schubert so that he could follow his true vocation as a music psychologist. And really, who's going to miss all of those ridiculous leader uh, and modern medicine also means he gets the chance to finish the Unfinished Symphony, which really messed up Massive Attack's career. It's okay, I've still got a handle on what we're doing, and I literally mistyped that as handle, which is kind of fraudulent. <laughs> Subconscious win, you're right, Ben. I need to get a soundboard clip of someone throwing out a fishing rod and reeling it back <laughs> in. <laughs> really squeaky, kind of rusty one. Yeah. Right, so... What they found just by listing potential factors, uh, Schubert and McPherson, was 76 different factors that impact the enjoyment of a concert. <laughs> and the example that he gives as a major difficulty in prediction is anticipation, which we've already mentioned there in relation to film. That anticipation clearly has an impact separate from the performance itself. So how can we model a comprehensive predictive model of what powers the enjoyment of concerts? Leave aside that Thompson might be wasting their life for a moment. Well, as previously discussed on the show, we have a useful tool, even if it's not uncontroversial, and that is factor analysis. It's time to face the mathematics. Ugh. Is that the cat or the concept? Uh, the uh, concept. Damn. Unfortunately. I mean, I don't know if the cat can do factor analysis. It's, anyway, they came up with a much more reasonable 22 scales at the Royal College of Music, which is a pun I was unaware of. Subconscious win. <laughs> um, told you subconscious our id is much better at this than we are <laughs> yeah and they were basically split into two categories pre-performance and during performance which in greek does not get a prefix so for example uh pre-performance variables can be thought of as those that are in operation before the concert starts don't worry he does give some examples here otherwise that'd be a really useless sentence uh, for instance knowing the music well being in a good mood or going to the concert with friends during performance variables are those that only become apparent as the concert actually progresses, for instance, the performer appearing to lack technical assurance or the acoustics of the venue being poor. It says something about a concert goer, you know, a classical concert goer, that they can spot appearing to lack technical assurance. Because if I see a guitarist, let alone a harpist, I really have no idea if they're doing it right or assuredly or not, barring can I, sound. Can I just pause you there for a moment? Go ahead. Um, when you began giving these examples of diff different factors that affect the enjoyment of a concert i glanced down at my soundboard and the first thing my eyes alighted on was my sound clip bound chica yeah which is the one you're familiar with and henceforth every time you said the word orchestra i've been replacing it with orgy right that i just i want the audience to be able to enjoy as i am enjoying listening to this with that in mind right well uh i, I do continue in, okay appearing to lack technical assurance that's a very different matter in an orgy <laughs> exactly Much clearly visible um so <laughs> they used a seven point likert which means it has a midpoint which is good as we discussed in like our second episode they phrased the pre-performance ones positively because if you anticipate negatively why are you even going to a concert the during ones are more likely to be things that suddenly go wrong so they phrase them negatively and this <laughs> is what they call a pragmatic approach and i call biased but hey at least it adds some balance so the questions are phrased i will probably enjoy a classical performance more slash less if so they got 264 people which is a good end from the royal college of music a local orchestra and people queuing for one of the proms now americana and various other listeners 
it is important that you know that the proms, uh, which you know, we came up with the idea of the proms and prom first. So as they are a celebration of the empire with some really dodgy nationalist songs and flag waving. I mean, there is also like 50 days of great classical music and it's just completely overpowered by the rubbishness of the last night. But still, uh, my mum went to a concert recently, actually. And along with choral versions of pop numbers, which we, of course, endorse, there were patriotic songs. And Land of Hope and Glory. Still hearing orgy, by the way. Great. <laughs> Land of Hope and Glory by Elgar, who we desperately hoped wasn't a horrid nationalist, includes these lines. They weren't written by him, but they were written by his friend to his music. Wider still and wider shall thy bounds be set. God who made thee mighty, make thee mightier yet. And indeed, Wikipedia confirms the hope of myself and my mother. Elgar desperately wished that Pomp and Circumstance did not have nationalistic lyrics. But he couldn't really stop people singing it. So... Right. Woo Elgar. Um, there's not a noise for when someone isn't a racist and it turns out they're not a racist or a nationalist and you're really glad about it, is there? Incorrect. No sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's the proms as told by an in totally unbiased interpretation from Mr. Liberal Guilt over here. So, <laughs> they thoroughly randomised the questionnaire and gave it out. They discarded missing data and they got the descriptive results first. Familiarity with the music was the highest rated item, and appropriateness of the performer's dress, the lowest. Yeah. Uh, the lowness of the performer's dress, I don't <laughs> know. Uh, anyway, obviously, you'd have to adjust the measures if you were going to study heavy metal, as in last week, to include a corpse paint appropriateness measure. Yes, level of moshing. Yeah. Uh, so then came the principal components analysis, which they explain is slightly different from factor analysis, which looks complicated, but it isn't too bad. Measures that load onto the same factor are all supposed to be measuring the exact same underlying thing. So to use my original example explaining factor analysis, pretending to be a Jedi and having strong opinions about Star Wars Episode One both load onto a factor of liking Star Wars. Principal components measure things that have the same effect, uh, the same impact on the outcome, but aren't necessarily related. So, hating all Star Wars films and being a firm devotee of the original trilogy will have a similar impact on liking for Star Wars Episode 2, but they clearly aren't measuring the same underlying thing. Good illustration. Hooray! So they then use different rotations, which again is complicated, but don't worry. There are two main ways to get the components, which obviously you don't want to run in parallel because that means they're basically the same in whichever way. Um, so they need to be roughly perpendicular or at least not too similar and that difference is the key to rotation you can do one where you let the components correlate a bit or you can do one when they don't correlate at all in terms of angles they're either at right angles or they're not the first so i suppose like liking for firefly would be a non-perpendicular sub thing that uh, would go with liking for star wars yeah but... so you wouldn't be able to find it if you were doing an orthogonal which is yep. the right angles, non-correlating rotation, and the other one is called oblique. And so basically their plan, and I don't know why this was their plan, was to do the correlating one, the oblique one first, and if it did correlate, then run with it. Otherwise, get an orthogonal one, the non-correlating one, to get a purer, non-significantly correlated one. I'm not sure why they have to do that, because if they don't correlate, then they don't correlate, and the model should be the same without the forced orthogonality. But, hey... I'm not a guy who does factor analysis or principal components analysis all the time. I'm not sure and Thompson is I'm either, to be fair. Not thinking hard enough about it to provide you with an answer. No, I don't. <laughs> there is one. Okay, so they're now about to do something that really angers me, and that's for the pre-performance model, the variable, I don't know the music slash performance, but I'm curious to hear them, didn't correlate well with anything, so they just chucked it out. 
which to me in factual analysis that's kind of a big no-no really isn't it because it's unique but and to me it's too because clearly curiosity is a good motive to go and hear something but maybe it doesn't really impact enjoyment in a useful way it might tell you why you're there but not how you experience it i suppose if they're trying to come up with like a a measure of something particular and it turns out that they have one item that isn't really actually measuring the thing that they're setting out to measure, it's okay to discard it. But they're, if, if they're interested in capturing all the possible dimensions yeah. that could influence enjoyment, they should be concerned about the fact that they only had like one item that measured that and that maybe they should like expand that. So yeah, they were, ex- and this is an exploratory study. So anyway, they got a three component model that was orthogonal, non-correlating for the pre-performance components. I keep wanting to say factors because it's so similar. Anyway, component one was about music and anticipation. So that included knowing the piece, being familiar with the sort of music and being able to play with it oneself potentially, but also being with friends and having anticipated the concert for a while. So component two was the emotional state that they were relaxed or felt good immediately before the show. Component three was familiar environment knowing the orchestra or the venue and being comfortable with it. So what about during performance? Well, they got a correlating model that was really on the threshold of the level of correlation suitable to the amount of data they had. So for ease of interpretation, went for a non-correlating orthogonal approach. Again, that's open to human error here, but it does give more clear results, although not that clear in this case. Apparently, it's harder to interpret the components this time, but I'm betting they're going to give it a go, you know, rather than having a reader competition with a prize of a ticket to a concert or something. (laughs) Uh, Sadly, I don't think that's an acceptable. Uh, you don't get that much in peer-reviewed journals, do you? You could see how it would work, though, getting like independent judges to come up with your labels and seeing if there is something consistent. It would take one ex- one step of experimental bias out of the equation to some yeah. extent. But I think anyone honest would just be like, "No, those two those things don't go together conceptually, just mathematically." Maybe. Um, but anyway, so component one is straightforward engagement. So includes things the performers aren't nervous, the person likes the interpretation of the piece, the performers are clearly committed. They title Component 2 Dynamic Modifiers, which is the name of my new band, the Dynamic Modifiers. Uh, It's a math punk band, and that is a real genre even though I just made it up, including one band I already have on my Spotify playlists. (laughs) Don Caballero. Well, we already did Mathcore on on last week's podcast. Yeah, well, I will stick a link in the show notes to Don Caballero and the other math punk people. Anyway... The point being, uh, yeah, that's the dynamic modifiers. Dynamic modifiers and things like audience and environmental noise, so extra musical stuff, as in extra dash musical, not extra space musical. Uh, musical stuff like wrong notes and then internal stuff like discomfort or boredom. And the point of it being dynamic is that these could happen at any time, unlike engagement for the most part. A sudden wrong note or a sneezing fit or reaching a point of discomfort that wouldn't have come if they'd done a shorter piece are all dynamic. Component three is the very hardest. It includes lack of appropriate dress, poorly fitting together program, and an equal loading with performers being nervous as component one. So they titled this component background modifiers because they're continual mm. rather than dynamic, unless it's a classical concert with loads of wardrobe changes. I mean, what was Lady Gaga like when she was a classical pianist anyway? Oh, apparently Thompson actually makes that joke in the uh, thing about, <laughs> not Lady Gaga, but about, oh, unless it has wardrobe changes. I'm like, wow. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Obvious joke, guys, apparently. <laughs> Similarly, with the program, it's not going to be a constantly and randomly intruding thing, given that classical concerts are usually a couple of long pieces. I don't know what two pieces of music don't go together, but a classical musician probably would be, a, or you know, music lover would be able to tell you, you should never put Wagner and Mozart on the same bill or something. 
So there's conceptual problems, but mathematically these have worked quite well. So what have we actually learned from this? Well, one, interpreting principal components is tricky, and they have not really interpreted using principal components. They've interpreted it as if it were a factor analysis, which might be why conceptually unrelated things load onto the same components. Essentially, friends make you feel the same way as liking a piece of music, but they don't affect you in the same way as liking a concert hall. Obviously, that's really hard to explain. Uh, they point out that this is just exploratory. And one of the things we have to take into mind is the way cause works with these components might be very complicated. And finally, there's the ultimate, but also a very honest get out. Further, they say, it may be that components interact differently from occasion to occasion, or from listener to listener, or even in the psychologist's nightmare scenario, both, in which case developing a generalizable model will be a difficult task indeed. Which is a great way to get out of saying, well, our results are quite confusing, but it might be that there's individual and situational differences. Another which, point they both make. of which are testable. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, as you say, this is an exploratory study. They have generated some dimensions. They found it's possible to get some components out, which is something. So next step is to find out whether these, uh, you know, dimensions are generalizable to other genres or whatever, and find out whether you can manipulate them in some yeah. way yeah. and what effect this has. So yeah, you could do the clothing. Wouldn't that be hilarious? Another yeah. point they make is the need to weight the components. Do continual things matter more than dynamic things, for example? Or what about mismatch between anticipation and performance? So the point for sensible future research is, they suggest, about engagement. Because engagement is a really important thing. It includes the audience and the performer. And clearly that's an interactive effect that could be studied mm. uh, with confederates of like violinists who are good at looking bored. <laughs> so their final point about how difficult this is to study is one participant, for instance, reported simply that either the performance sort of clicks or it doesn't. And it certainly seems like many listeners would not be used to thinking about their effective responses in such analytic terms. Unlike us. Yeah. <laughs> the cold harbingers of something. <laughs> it's also a band name. <laughs> Definitely. Well, there we go. That's cool. That's the music. Yeah, I, I've not played very many role-playing games, but when I did once play a Star Wars role-playing game, the Game Master made the mistake of letting me be a Jedi. It turns <laughs> out my idea of being a Jedi is just using the Force to solve all problems, even when it's deeply inappropriate to. <laughs> exactly. So, Like emotional problems. <laughs> <laughs> Can you use the Force? The, these aren't the repressed memories you're looking for? <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway. So, you know, the... Because I, no, I, sorry, I don't mean to like slow you down, but I saw this amazing thing that took the comedy of Jimmy Tarbuck, took all of his dodgiest jokes that would be unacceptable now, and then redid the laugh track so no one was laughing. So it looked like he was being really racist and therefore dying. It was great. That, that sounds good. Anyway, so... The... If I'd been Bob Munkhouse, I'd forget the two very confused. Well, that's the thing, is that we, domains and basic level stuff does exist, and you can test it with computer models or just by, like, structuring people's knowledge and stuff. Yeah. But whether you get these things, I don't know. The unique quality of superhero stories compared to other folk mythology, I think, is that the superhero stars are serial. They are ongoing. They have to have constantly new challenges and new threats on a, up to anything up to like a weekly basis. And that kind of by extension demands escalation. You know, once right. Superman is shown to have stopped a tidal wave, all future tidal waves lose their threat unless they're combined with something else like a kryptonite tidal wave yeah on the other hand 
Jesus walking on water remains significant and memorable because it's part of a story which is always presented as a complete and finished whole. If Jesus was a superhero, by now his walking on water would be entirely incidental. He'd have to be like walking on water in space fighting aliens and he'd probably be teaming up with like a superhero gang of Buddha and Muhammad to combat an evil league of Satan, Shiva and Judas Iscariot. It, it would have and had... it'd have been resurrected a million times. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> that's what happens in comics. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point from a kind of purely narrativistic kind of point of view. And there'd be like a junior Justice League composed of all the disciples, like doing their own stuff. And... Well, I guess that, yeah, what, you know, from a theological point of view, people say was that the adventure continues, but not in the way that it does in comics. Yeah. You know, it continues because people live out religious stuff and so yeah the stories are always the same but then there's the people's own kind of interaction kind of in a religious point of view the rituals prayer that sort of thing Mm. but also kind of like you know the ongoing well i'm the character essentially yeah i guess you know and okay we've got these stories and you get the legends of saints and martyrs through time but they're not usually as quite exciting necessarily um but people feel involved in the story in the way that nerds you know are just like right in but like superman's not like this they do feel ownership and involvement but it doesn't necessarily affect they don't feel part of the story in the same way i don't think no so yeah so you don't need to invent like escalation of things when it's more like well you know not can jesus walk on water in space so much as what can jesus do for me yeah which is a very selfish way of looking at it. but you know what what's my part in this particular story sure anyway yeah and these were beliefs all, all sorts of things they could okay because be... you know boyer studied objects and people yeah i don't know i don't I think if beliefs were different because you have to believe beliefs and then you have to encounter objects i suppose i, I don't think they the atron stimuli required the participants to believe them it just no just... sure sure but you know beliefs are in you know they're they're substances that they are believed yeah but then i, I suppose objects are kind of observed or they you know, you know that they are. So why should it be that they're treated differently? Yes. But I feel like they might be processed differently because one's th- kind of perceptual and one's conceptual. I suspect that this uh, he didn't in the paper that I was reading. He didn't actually give ex- examples of these stimuli, but I suspect that they were more like stories, little tales, right. basically okay. containing events and characters that were intuitive and events and characters that were non-intuitive because they needed to fit together kind of thematically. Okay, I thought you were going to say that the one that mixed them. E- was the best remembered well no uh, okay. so yeah exactly and so that's why i always pick telepathy because it's all about knowledge both basically just kind of my my addiction to knowledge of all forms whether gossip or science mm. what do yeah. you pick do i you usually pick i usually pick control over time just because oh okay fair enough that's a good choice i hate people who pick flying i despise them they're scum <laughs> I don't understand if people can fly on this. It's one of those things that kind of smacks of a little bit of lack of imagination to me. Yes, I think... I always feel like people who say flying as their superpower suggest a slight lack of imagination. Or possibly just they haven't read enough comics to see what the options are. Yeah, absolutely. Or read Wikipedia about the X-Men comics they haven't had time to catch up with. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, (laughs) what I was going to ask if it's not too much of a distraction is what counts as intuitive because i was thinking you know some things that fall into the kind of the religious ambit strike me as more intuitive than counterintuitive and some don't so like ideas of order to the universe and kind of individual purpose those sort of things i uh 
I will not go into the answer, but I will okay. tell you that there is one. So the the Barrett paper from which I got the uh, the like ontological categories and the animism and animatism and all that kind of stuff uh, is called coding and quantifying counterintuitiveness in religious concepts, theoretical and methodological reflections. Right. And basically goes through this as they the, the process that they go through of working out what is intuitive and what is counterintuitive. And you're okay. right, it is it is a major question and there are lots of interesting things surrounding, you know, is in is intuitiveness exactly the same for all people? Is it based oh, yeah. on like learned experiences when you're kind of forming your semantic structure? Are there consistent things? Are there inconsistent things? All this kind of stuff. Yeah. And similarly, like the relationship between intuitiveness and reality is not a one-to-one mapping. It might exactly. be 90%, but you know, as I say, radio waves, quantum physics. Yeah. Um, which I, I'm just trying to get my head around all of this stuff. What I want is for superheroes to be real, you know? Yeah, I think that's what we all want, Tim, basically. But then again, like, that's not necessarily the point. Like, actually, we said that we weren't going to talk about, you know, the psychological trauma that lies at the heart of most superpowers and supervillains. But if you can look at someone like... uh, Batman or actually no, the X-Men is better because they actually have powers. So the whole, you know, the, the allegory of X-Men is stigma, social stigma and, you know, community and family, I guess. Yeah. It's one read of it. Civil rights of various forms. Yeah. And so you can if you you are someone who is personally struggling with uh, some element of stigma in your life and you you read them the X-Men comics, then you get to relate to them because they are going through the same problems and difficulties as you are, but you also see them overcoming them. And part of that will be, you know, because they can shoot lasers out of their eyes at people who disagree with them. But the best comics are the ones where they are dealing with problems that are fundamentally human. You know, one of my favorite comics is civil war, which is, a controversial opinion to have <laughs> uh, that certainly but it's also you know that they are fundamentally human struggles yeah. that just happen to be being had by people with superpowers but you're right it's about responsibility and government and that sort of thing and in researching for this i found the quote from neil gaiman quoting from gk chesterton about fairy tales are more than tr- uh, are more than true not because they tell us that dragons exist but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten or in I, this made me think of the Game of Thrones books, which are important, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons are frankly the least of our concerns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not that dragons exist, but that we're all going to die. <laughs> but it's your Chesterton was a magical fellow. <laughs> your incestuous family members who want to kill you that are the ones you should really be worried about. Um, the, I mean, the, on the, on- the <laughs> yeah. The only other thing that um, struck me whilst going through this was the idea of ensemble casts and like universes and canons and uh, continuities. Yeah. Because one way to look at these huge ensembles that you get with like 52 or whatever they are, I'm not well enough versed in. I mean, Civil War is an example, but yeah, I'm not well enough versed in comics to know the specifics. But these huge ensemble pieces is that they act, almost characterize the, the problem of modern superhero comics with escalation. You know, you get make all these characters and all these villains and, you know, 
if you're going to have them switch between worlds, then at some point they're going to run into each other. And if you're escalating the threat, once say once Superman has defeated individually all the villains in the DC universe, he then has to take on multiples of them at one time. And then he has to get friends on his side to deal with them and all this kind of thing. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. On the other hand, I think you can, the best continuities are the ones where either by retconning or just by the way that they've naturally emerged, all the characters involved are essentially variations on the same basic set of intuition violations. One of I, I recently got uh, an anthology of short Neil Gaiman comics, many of which were dealing with the Swamp Thing oh. kind of sub-continuity within DC. So him and Animal Man. No. Oh, really? There okay. are a, they, those two tend to hang out. Uh, there's there's a, a number of swamp thing like entities oh, okay. uh, I didn't know that. Uh, that crop up in relation to him, and they're all based on the, like a single like basically a, a domain level violation between human and plant, and yeah. they kind of take that in lots of different directions. And you you know the the cool differences where you get like. I guess like Venom and Spider-Man is they're very similar in terms of their powers, but you're seeing how one goes good and one goes evil. And that's always cool. This is why like bizarro world superheroes are interesting. It's where you're kind of seeing all the possibilities that could possibly emerge from a single change in reality. And those are ones that I, I like the most, certainly. And I think that's probably why I generally prefer Marvel to DC. Although, because there just always seems to be slightly more consistency in the the mythology, only very slightly. I, I kind admit. of see what you mean about that. I, I, I don't, don't know, know where, where I fall. I tried to I tried to rationalise this, and it certainly works with X Men. But yeah, and you know, Iron Man is a bit like Batman. He could Batman could fit into the Mar- uh, Marvel universe. Well, have you seen the crazy crossover stuff? I know that it there it is here and there and the uh stan lee's version of dc comic heroes oh really which is hilariously bad because <laughs> the tones are different yeah exactly but like the the dc universe it's like when we play dc universe online you've got yeah. you basically pick like realism and gadgets superman and lex Luthor, or like this crazy like magic sorcery stuff with wonder woman yeah and then they just like mash them all together Whereas with Marvel, they, they, they seem, for some reason, like, despite the fact that you have gods and radioactive spiders and genetic mutation. I mean, a lot of it is science-y. It's like chemicals, radiation, mutation. I suppose even the gods aliens, are technically, like, science. And, just like, taking... tech suits. Yeah. But then, I don't know. And there is magic in Marvel and there's demons and stuff. Mm. But the contemporary presentation of Marvel certainly has kind of made that a lot more coherent and played down a lot of the other aspects. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, This one has run horrendously on. It is our first double podcast. We could actually split this into part one and part two and have a rest next week. Um, Or at least... Possibly. I mean, that's, that's a work of editing that you won't have to do <laughs> this is true uh but anyway uh okay there we go Pun- punchy episode yeah very <laughs> and one minute and 13 one minute and 13 <laughs> very punchy episode one hour and 13 minutes <laughs> yeah we could try and do a 
Okay, then. <laughs> you, you can cut out Click Splurge if you like. I'm not cutting that out. It's great. <laughs> Just horrible, but great as well. <laughs> Another triumph for Psychomedia sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ugh. Wow, we did a surprisingly long podcast on clothing. <laughs> Who knew? Okay, so a lot of it was about the Avengers, but still. <laughs> yes, about 20 minutes on the Avengers. Uh I always do. I always do. Just check what the the time point is when we're when we're cutting into the actual content, and it's usually about twenty minutes. And this time it was like twenty nine fifty nine. Right. <laughs> just on the borderline of acceptable. Didn't come up with any super brilliant episode title, so I think I was going for the science of superheroes. Are you sure least... not click splurge? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there was, uh, there. That's one of. I've started noticing this week and last week. I noticed myself self-editing jokes that I was about to make. Right. Um, and yeah, <laughs> which I suppose it's a good sign because it shows like an excess of material and not like just being desperate to say things. But at the same time, yeah. Oh dear. What? 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 Did- it was a joke about transvestites, not transvestites, uh, transsexuals. Okay. You failed to say he or she. You just said he, she. And yeah, I, I did. I was aware of that. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I was mature enough not to feel the need to pick up on it. <laughs> oh, well, never mind. I'm sure we were offensive en- enough in other ways. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we were. I also totally had a joke. You mentioned the thing about like crossing a sheep with a kangaroo. Um, and I, I was desperately trying to come up with a like a, a, a nerdy non-joke whereby what do you call a, sheep, uh, a cross between a sheep and a kangaroo? And it's like the Latin name for a cross between a sheep and a kangaroo. <laughs> uh, but it took too long to research. Well, yeah, my joke was um, what do you get if you cross a sheep and a kangaroo? A strongly worded letter from your university's bioethics department. <laughs> that was the one I used in my stand-up set. And a woolly jumper. <laughs> I crossed the sheep with a kangaroo at Oxford University and all I got was this lousy woolly jumper. 